Lord, we come before you. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your abiding love. Thank you that you love us far, far more than we can imagine. Help us as men to dive deep down into that love. To drink from the cup in your hand. To lay our head against your chest and to feel your heartbeat. You need to change us, Lord. You need to change us a lot more that we can see others, the world, the way that you do. Transform our minds, our hearts, our spirit, our soul into yours. Fashion us to be vessels for your spirit to fill us for your glory. May the word that's proclaimed be something that's a sweet sound to your ear. May all we do be a fragrant offering to you. Because you, Jesus, the Lamb, deserve every single bit of the reward of your suffering. You're worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, we're moving on to the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. I think most of you heard, so Thessalonian, Thessalonian church was founded um, around the late 40s, early 50s A.D. I'm getting a little bit of reverb. And um, Paul was only there for three weeks. Um, he spoke often, he spoke passionately, and then he was advised to leave because his very life was threatened. He didn't want to. He went into hiding for a while, but then um, others were persecuted and he left. He went further south, went to Berea, and then eventually migrated all the way down to Corinth. And he was there for a while, you think about 18 months, and about a year after his visit to Thessalonica, he wrote First Thessalonians, and then within probably a few months after that, he wrote Second Thessalonians. As I've shared before, there's some controversy. We don't know if First Thessalonians was written before Galatians or Galatians were written before Thessalonians. But um, that being said, this is something that was early in what Paul talked about, okay? This is something he believes, and when we read the Word and we read the Scriptures, keep that in mind, that the concepts, the things that, are, that Paul's communicating were already clearly defined within the body, Okay, the church understood this. It's not something that later developed centuries later. This is something that happened within 20 years of Jesus' ascension. Okay, that was very clear. So let's move to the very first two verses of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as is from us, as though the day 
of Christ has come. So as I shared, so Paul was there the year before. He had already written 1 Thessalonians. And let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. We covered this um, in December. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul had made very clear, and this is where we get the idea of the rapture. Okay, so he's talking about this rapturo, which is the Latin word for that, to be raptured, to be taken up, to be taken away, and he's already communicated that to them when he was there and again in the letter in the First Thessalonians. And so he now says, some of you in Thessalonica thought, maybe we missed it. Maybe they got raptured out and they left us behind. Okay? And he's saying, look, don't worry. Don't fret. Okay? The day of Christ, that day of the Lord has not yet come. Okay? And so, again and again in Scripture, when we read, there's an important concept that we have to understand. Is that our own natural reasoning mind, we are prone to stray. We are prone to misunderstand. We are prone to, to get confused and to distort what the Word of God says, what the Spirit of God wants to do. There's a spirit in this world. There's a prince of the air, and his plan is to corrupt the Word of God. He tried to do that with Jesus right at the beginning when Jesus was in the wilderness, right? He, he challenged Jesus on the Word of God. He didn't really say that. He did that in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Did God really say that? He said, don't touch the tree, that's not what God said. God said, don't eat. He just changed his life, don't touch. That's what Satan will do. There's going to be little subtle changes and distortions. And what happens is, you think you're following the straight and narrow path, and you start to veer off, little by little. Okay, and so God has been good. He's given us the word of God. He's given us the Bible, the holy word, to continually to set our line straight. Okay, those of you involved in construction know what a plumb line is. Okay, you have a level to make sure that you get things straight on level. Well, God's continually giving us a plumb line, a level in the Word of God. And what's happening with the Thessalonians is obviously, obviously, they didn't have the Bible as a whole then. They had the teachings and they had to remember that through oral tradition. It wasn't written down very much. And so he's, God's commissioned him to write the letters. Most of this stuff was all written. Even the Gospels, even though it was continually shared by oral tradition, had not yet been written down. Okay? We think Mark was written about four or five years later. Okay? As a quick synopsis through um, Mark's talking with Peter. So I want you to understand, they didn't have the advantage that we have. Okay? But even though we have so many more advantages than they do, we're still just as prone to stray, just as prone to misunderstand, just as prone to let our own natural reasoning mind 
take us down a path we want to go. So, I want you to read here. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 to 37 to 42. And all these things talk about, when we talk about what's going to happen at the end, most of us believe, though not all, but the vast majority believe, that when you know, Christ came, when he came 2,000 years ago, but that they talk about the second coming of Christ, okay, where his presence will be here. The Greek word for that is perusia. Okay, And in that part, there's going to be two aspects of it. And so when they talk about him, that we will meet him, that means his church will be taken up with him into the clouds. That's what we call the rapture. And that he will then come onto the earth. And that's where you hear with the battle of Armageddon and the end times and where God's going to come to judge the world. And Jesus is going to come on a white horse. Okay, and so in that second coming, it kind of has two parts of it. One, he's going to come to help to take his church, and the other part, he's going to come to judge the world. And so in Matthew chapter 24, to starting with verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the son coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord Will come. And so this is talking about that moment of meeting him in the air. So something will happen. We won't, we'll know the season. We'll have an idea of that time, but we won't know when it'll happen exactly. And it'll happen suddenly, and there's different f- Christian fiction books that talk about that. Okay? But then, so that's that first part of that coming, and that's where we talk about meeting him in the clouds. And then the second part, let's turn to Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountain and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is referring to Jesus. Move 13 more chapters into Revelation chapter 19. 11 to 21. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, and you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sits on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So Jesus is going to come. I don't want you to doubt that. He's going to come to save those. He's going to, there's going to be a moment where he's going to rescue those who have put their faith and trust in him. Okay, it's not, not people who just say so. It's lives showing the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, because we know, he says, many, many say that, and he says, I never knew you. It's those who have that intimate, ongoing, personal relationship with him. Okay, it's a life surrendered to Christ. There are many, many who say they're Christian, but their life shows no fruit of that. They're basically functional atheists. Okay, now I'm talking to most of the people here, and you're obviously coming to church, and you're involved, and you're reading, so I'm not saying that's meaning you, but it may certainly be many that you are associated with. Many of those in your family and your friends thinking that they made a profession or they even go to church or even do good works, that that's gonna give them a place with God in heaven. And that is not what the word says. Okay, it will take something supernatural. It is supernatural, salvation is a supernatural event. It is truly a miracle. Okay, nothing that we deserve. God's grace extended to us that transformed us. When we repented, there's something we have to do. We have to repent. We have to say, I can't do it. I need you. Please forgive me all, each and every one, all of my sins. And I humbly come before you asking you undeservingly, not deserving because we don't deserve it, that you come into me that you take over. And so until there's a complete surrender, you don't really have salvation. Okay, in World War II, the Allies insisted on a complete surrender from the Axis powers. No terms and conditions. You can't go to God with terms and conditions, saying, okay, I'll do this, but I want this. Now, our, our problem, of course, is we do come to it, and then afterwards we start to put some terms and conditions. 
It's an ongoing surrender too. But I want you to understand here, there's going to be wrath. And I've, I've, you know, if you go through the book of Revelation, you know, it, it can be startling. There's a lot of imagery. Some of it can be symbolic. Some of it isn't. Um, it's very clear that it's God's judgment. He is a merciful, loving God, but he's also holy. And holiness requires justice, requires making all wrongs right. Okay? And we minimize the holiness of God because of his love. We think, oh, it doesn't matter. Our sin doesn't really matter. Every bit of our sin, both of commission and omission, matter. Everything we don't do that he's called us to do matters. It matters. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. That's why we need, we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior and we'll need a Savior. Okay? The good news is it's freely given. We've shared and we've sung how good of a God he is. He wants no one to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And he's provided really an easy way to do it. It does require complete surrender. It does. But it is an easy way. There's really not a lot we have to do except surrender. So, unfortunately, people's hearts are hardened, and what's going to happen in this world are many who will not choose to surrender. In their pride, they will shake their fists against God and basically say, I would rather rule in hell. And so, God's going to bring wrath, a taste of what is going to happen. So, he's letting them know that and wants them to understand now, part of the thing that Paul's trying to let them know as well, he said he didn't want them to be shaken in mind because the Thessalonians were hearing different messages. And you're going to hear different things from different people. There's a lot of different books about end times, the term eschatology. Different people have different views, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, post-millennial, amillennial, that means no thousand-year reign. There's so many different beliefs about it, and I'm not going to go into that in detail because I don't think that that's useful. What is useful is it, the clear fundamental thing that every orthodox believer accepts, and I think the word makes it very evident. Jesus will come for his church. He will come for his bride. He will purify his bride and make it holy, and Jesus is going to come to judge the world. Jesus, the one who loves us, the lamb that was slain, for those who reject his free offering, his great, huge blessing, he will come to judge. He has to. It's the only way to make things right. It's the only way to show that he cares about righteousness as much as he cares about love. And so the Thessalonians weren't, weren't sure. And so he said... I need to explain things to you, okay? And some of you thought, okay, that the day of Christ has come. He said, Christ has not come yet to judge the world, okay? You haven't seen people translated, people going up, raptured out, and you haven't seen the wrath of God poured out, okay? They thought because they were going through persecution, they were going through trial, that they're under tribulation. And to some extent, it's true. They are. Anytime we go through trial, that is what tribulation is. 
Okay? Tribulation is trial. But what we're talking about here and what I read from in Revelations is the great tribulation, which will be God's wrath poured upon those, where literally people will hide in caves, where they can't even see the face of God because even that will terrify them. And they use this imagery of flames, of things. And the intent is to show you that this is the God that's awe-inspiring. And when Isaiah talked about in, in chapter 6 and he was before the throne of God, you know, he couldn't even bear to be in the presence of God. We can't bear to be in the presence of a holy God. Moses was given special dispensation, and when he came down with a Shekinah glory, it still made an impact. We can't be in the presence of God. He is way too beautiful and holy, too awe-inspiring, far beyond what we can imagine. The only way is by the covering of the Lamb. It's only because we have Jesus on and through us. It's only that way. So they won't have that, and because they won't have that, all they will see was something that will completely blow their minds. They, their whole sense of reality will be shaken to its core. They can't bear it. They can't stand it. So Paul then goes on in the third verse of that second chapter. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So he's letting them know, hey, that's not going to happen yet until a couple of things. Number one, there's going to be this great falling away. And we see in our time, compared to the last even 100 years, that there's some falling away, and every generation thinks they're in the last days. You know, back 100 years ago, they thought they were in the last days. 500 years ago, they thought they were in the last days. Okay? A thousand years ago, they thought in their last days. And we say Jesus is going to come soon, and every generation, we think we're in the last days. Okay? And I don't know. I keep thinking, yeah, it's going to happen anytime soon. We see events, and if you're into prophecy, you'll see many things fulfilled that would make sense. But honestly, I don't know. Okay? In the days of Noah, there was nothing that was good, except for those eight. Nothing else that was good. We're not quite there yet. Okay, we're not quite there yet. It's pretty bad, I think, but we're not quite there yet. There's going to be a great falling away. And what does that falling away mean? That means the whole culture and society. That may mean and will likely mean that many who profess the name of Christ will fall away. Okay, that they'll say they're Christian because it's culturally appropriate. We see that currently in our country. We saw that in Britain. That, and if you go to Britain, and I've been there, in the subway stations, you know, there's scripture written on them. These old subways from 100 years ago, you know, there's scripture written on them. So many places, monuments, there's scripture written on them. But British is now a, Britain is now a secular country, okay? The U.S., this latest generation, the Generation Z, is the least Christian, the least religious generation, okay? They doubt all things of authority, and so most of that, those Generation Z, are moving away from things of the faith, Okay? And you can see that sense of falling away. So there's a cultural falling away. But there will also be those, as I said, the, the, those who profess Christ may fall away. 
And it talks about there's going to be this deception. The enemy is doing a deception, and we'll talk further that God's also going to send something. But the second part of it that I talked about is this, the man of sin, the son of perdition. This is one of two places where that term is used. Who else was called the son of perdition? Judas. Judas. Yeah, Judas was called the son of perdition. And why is he called the son of perdition? It's because this individual who presents on the world scene, plus Judas, are the only two beings identified in Scripture as having this Satan enter into him. Actually have Satan enter him. Enter him. Okay? That happened with Judas right there at the Last Supper. Okay? At some time, this person who may already be on the scene, we don't know, will have Satan enter into him. The word here is used, talks about this individual won't be a demon. Okay? They use the word anthropos. This will actually be a living human being. And that living human being will have Satan enter. Okay? Um, Daniel, if you look through the book of Daniel, you get to see in through 8 through 11 chapters, talks about the, the prince who comes, the king of fierce countenance, willful king. Okay? Um, all the... I want you to understand the term Antichrist is used. But a lot of people talk about a spirit of Antichrist and they'll refer to religious institutions or organizations. Protestants have often referred to Roman Catholics that way. That is not what this scripture is talking about. This scripture is specifically talking about an individual. Okay? People tend to generalize and they try to use, and this is one of the things we have to be careful about, distorting or using scripture for one's own agenda. Okay, there is a spirit of the, of the enemy, of Satan. There is the prince of the world, and he definitely influences all structures of power. That's no doubt. Okay, he's going to corrupt anybody from the top down. That's what happens. And you see that. And it does, but it doesn't matter whether they're of one particular denomination or another. It happens to all the different world religions, including Christianity. And that's why you see, especially those who have been in positions of power or prominence, or more prone to fall, okay? They're not humble, and we've seen that, and it, it breaks my heart to hear these people who I thought were great men of faith, but actually were leave, living secret lives of deep sin, okay? And often exposed after their death, okay? It's a terrible testimony to the church, but they were under the dominion of the enemy, of the prince of this world, what this is talking about is a particular individual, though. Okay? So there will be somebody who may already be on the scene. So in John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus talks about this individual. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And then in 1 John 4, 2, and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess 
that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So this spirit, Jesus identified as already in the world. So there's no question that Satan's spirit is present and has been present for over 2,000 years. Okay? Let's move on to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. What the man of sin does, okay? So who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped? So they sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, this individual who is the Antichrist, will want, will set himself, and when they talk about the temple, they're talking about that in the, in the Holy Mount in Jerusalem, in the inner sanctum. Okay, not just somewhere on the grounds, not in the mosque on the side, but when they do start in the temple itself, and this man will exalt himself above all others and will want people to be worshipped. He will be an individual who will come who will unite the world. People initially see him as a savior. He'll do many good things, and we'll talk about signs and wonders, but what he'll ultimately want is to be worshipped. Why is that important for us? It's important for us to understand no believer should ever want to be worshipped if he's following Christ. It's the flesh that wants to be worshipped. Our flesh wants to be worshipped. Our flesh wants everybody to acknowledge us, to thank us, to think we're wonderful, to think we're great, that we're something, somebody. You look in the world, right? We exalt those who do well, but we do that even with Christians. You go to a symposium because who's the speaker? Well, so-and-so speaking. Wow, so wonderful they are. We exalt that. And if anything, if you look back, especially with regards to American Christianity, we may have been worse in many ways than Hollywood. Back in the 1800s, they had all these tent revivals, and they want these celebrities to come in who were good and fine in speech would come and talk about things. And people would attend and give monies. And some of them were charlatans. There was some great revival. There were some great things of, of, of movements of God. But even Jonathan Edwards, when he spoke sinners in the hands of an angry God, most authorities talk about that time that he just basically read his sermon. He wasn't that eloquent. It wasn't that special in his own strength. But amazing in the power and the Spirit of God. That people were shaking right there, falling on their faces, repenting to God at that moment. So that's the challenge. We naturally in our flesh like somebody who's eloquent, who speaks really well, who's, who's fluid, who just likes really smooth. But that is not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of man. <clears throat> that's what's going to happen. You're going to have somebody who's a charismatic leader who's able to entrance everybody and go, oh yeah, he's great. They do this, they do this, they do this, and we like them. And, and people will start to exalt the individual. That is not what God's calling us to do. Whether it's on the left or the right, it doesn't matter. If we're exalting the man, we're heading the wrong way. We're heading the wrong way. Okay? 
So Jesus himself said in Luke 4, 8, and Jesus answered him and said, get behind me, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Okay? So then Jesus was obviously talking to Peter about that, but the principle being is the only one that we worship, the only one that we acclaim, the only one we worship is God. No other human being, doesn't matter what their status is, how good, how eloquent, what they've done even for the Lord, we don't worship them. We only worship God, He alone. And this is what Jesus talks about. Let's turn to Matthew 24, starting from verse 4. And Jesus answered them, and he said, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many people. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place. But that's not yet the end. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Hmm. Is that already happening? And all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you, that's us, over to tribulation and kill you. Not yet happened much here, though it is in the Middle, Middle East and other countries. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. And the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's the inner temple, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his own house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in winter or on Ah, Shabbat. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been spared. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is Christ, or he is over here, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, and if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if, you say to, if, I, if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And this is a strong word. Wherever the corpse is, they the vultures will gather. I could do a whole teaching just on those verses. There's a lot of things that Jesus is talking about, talking about the same things that are happening at the time. Not everything that's communicated happens in the same linear time when you read it. 
So sometimes when you read scripture, there's a little bit of jumping around, and you'll find that, wait, wait, that happens here, and there's a sequence, and you're trying to synchronize it, and that's where the challenge on our part is, because we have trouble trying to figure some things out in terms of the time sequence, okay? So not all of that time sequence is completely clear. What is clear is, are there going to be a fallen, is there going to be a fallen way? Yes. Are there going to be people who are going to be coming, who are going to proclaim that they are the Christ? Yes. Will they have signs and wonders? Yes. That means they'll do things that we won't be able to understand. And we'll think, the only person who can do those things is God. Not true. Not true. And it says, it'll be so impressive that even those who believe, even those who spend time on the Word, could be deceived. That we ourselves think, yeah, that's Jesus come back. Don't believe. So then how do we know? How do we know? Well, there'll be a few things we just talked about, right? There'll be a great falling away, not yet fully occurred. Okay? There will be the man who will put himself on the, in, in the, in the uh, Temple Mount, not yet fully occurred. There's going to be events that are going to happen before that. Those things have to be fulfilled. Jesus is not going to come back until certain things are clearly fulfilled. Okay? Jesus didn't come to save all the world. He came to save the elect. He wants all to be the elect. Everyone wants to be the, be the elect. But he came to save the elect, not the world. He's going to redeem the world. Okay, so somebody says they're going to save the whole world. That's not what Jesus is going to do. Okay? All suffering will be alleviated in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, but not until then. It won't be. That's what the Word says very clearly. And every suffering will be gone. It'll be perfect. It will be paradise in the new world. But until then, it won't be. So anybody says it will be, that's not Jesus. I'm going to fix all the problems. Warning, that's not what the Word says. Okay, so we have to be mindful of those things. And so some of the challenges, we have to talk with each other and go, I think this is it. And somebody else can say, no, it doesn't match up here. And we need to help one another along with this. Okay, that's why the Word of God is given to us. That's why God commissioned Paul to write this, to correct things within the Thessalonian church, but also for our benefit. So that we would know the path that God has wanted for us. So, some of the things you have to realize with this man of sin, when he comes, he and Jesus are going to have a coming. They're both going to have a revelation. They're going to be revealed. They will also have a message, a gospel, okay? Both of them have said they alone should be worshipped, and both will have claims for miraculous support for what they do, okay? I want you to understand something about how Satan works. Every, he cannot create anything, all he can do is distort that which is true. That's all he does. Okay, if any of you are Lord of the Rings fan, that's what Morgoth did, or Melkor, when he became, then became Morgoth. He distorted what Eru Iluvatar did. But basically the same idea. He can't create anything. All he can do is distort that which is created. So same thing with this son of perdition. He will distort that which is created. Okay, he cannot create 
and it will be a false thing. It will be like it, though. He knows what the template of a God is, and he's going to, okay, well, that's what God does, so I'm going to make my version of that. It will be a counterfeit. That's what a true counterfeit is. Moving on to verses 5 to 8. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now that you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, wow, there's a few point things here that I want to talk about. So there's lots here. So Paul's explaining what's going to happen. Okay, and so this lawless one is another word for this son of perdition, this antichrist, right? So he's already letting him know a couple things. One, when I was there with you those few weeks, I explained things to you. Somebody else may tell you something different, but this is exactly what I told you what's going to happen, okay? And you have to realize that some of the things that haven't happened, okay, because it, you wonder why and when it's going to happen, there's a restraining this is what God does, just like he did with Job. God, we don't realize God's goodness sustains this creation. This whole universe is sustained by the grace of God. That's why scientists can't figure things out, because they don't realize there's a supernatural event, there's an extra-dimensional event. God is sustaining the universe. God is suppressing the influence of the Antichrist. He's suppressing the influence of Satan. Just like he did with Job in the book of Job, when Job wanted to do certain things, God set some limits. Satan can do things under certain conditions. God permits Satan to operate. Even though we don't understand, it actually brings him more glory. It does give us a chance to choose. He wants those to choose. He gives us choice. Because there's evil present, we have a choice. We're bent towards evil because of what Adam did in our own predisposition. But because of the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that woos us, there is a choice to accept. Now, to some extent, God has chosen us, and he talks about we are chosen by God, and we get to choose. And I don't have that. It's a tension there that's not clearly explained. Okay, Calvinists or those who reform will say God has chosen his elect and, you know, some are decreed to go to heaven, others are, if you're um, super lapsarian, basically if you're hyper-Calvinist as such, you believe that some are predetermined to go to hell. Okay, those who are more Armenian in, in belief will say that God's grace is there for everybody and he wants everybody to go, but only some will choose. Okay, each person you have to wrestle with. I don't think the scripture is clearly identified one way or the other. There's no question nobody would come apart from the grace of God. But also there's clear evidence that there's a volition and there's something on our choice, but God extends that. Because of the grace of God, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the ability to make some choice. So it is still the Holy Spirit and it's still God, and yet we get to choose, okay? And that's part of that tension that's there in scripture. And you'll hear people side on one side or the other, and we won't really know until we're getting to heaven exactly what it is. 
okay? I believe, okay, that everybody has a choice, that there is free will. Even though we've sinned, and even because of that sin corrupts our ability to will, because of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives each one a choice, a free will. Because it's his desire that no one should perish, and he wants all to come to him. Okay? And because I believe that God's a just God, and he gives everyone a choice. But others see things other ways, and I understand that philosophy. I also want to talk about the second point about the lawless one, the lawlessness one. So what does a lawlessness person look like? Lawlessness is living as though your own ideas are superior to God's. Lawlessness is saying God may demand it, but I don't prefer it. Lawlessness says God may promise it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with my contrary desires. I become a law unto myself. Lawlessness is rebellion against the right of God to make laws and govern his creatures. Lawlessness signifies everything that is contrary to the will of and law of God and is more intentional and flagrant sin. It's direct and open rebellion against God and his ways. So lawlessness describes one who has the quality of not being regulated by, restrained by, or controlled by law. It's one who's not governed by nor obedient to laws and who is thus is unbridled and uncontrolled in everything, which is what the Antichrist is. But when I read all that, I see all those things and I realize within me my own bent to lawlessness. I do rely too much on my own thinking. I do think my ways are the best. I want God to bless my ways, not for me to surrender my ways for His. I have my own plans and ambitions. And I kind of go along with God as long as He's aligned with me. But that's not what His Word says. I have to realign with Him. And so when this Spirit's coming, and as the Spirit is coming, that choice is going to become harder and harder. The world's going to tug us more and more towards its way. It's already doing that. It's make, redefining terms of what's right and wrong. It's redefining relationships, what's gender, sexuality, what's, what's fair, unfair. Everything that we thought we understood was right is now being turned upside down. I heard Paul Washer in a message he gave back in 2007. Is there not going to go, they're going to say that we're wicked. We're the wicked ones because we say there are only two genders. We're the wicked ones because we say that human life, even a conception, is worth keeping. And that means restraining a woman's right to choose, that that's wicked. We're going to be wicked because we think there are certain consequences based on behavior. We're wicked because we expect accountability, because we expect holiness and righteousness. And we're not free. 
We're not tolerant. We are not compassionate. That's going to become harder and harder for us to make choices that support the way the Word of God asks us to do. And when you're in a small group, like here we are in church, when we're in this enclave, it's easier. But when you're out in the world, it's, going to, it's harder. When everybody else around you, when you want any kind of job, it's going to be harder. When the only way you can get that is based on your social, and you already see that in China, where they, with facial recognition and based on your actions and what you do on Facebook, you have not only your economic credit, you also have a social credit. They keep a scale of your, whether you're doing the right thing or not, how much you're doing that's approved behavior. So if you do an act in approved behavior, then that's good. You get a mark in the plus column for that. If you don't do those things they want you to do, then you have negative columns. And we're already seeing that here in the West. We're seeing that in the terms of the courses. I see that in the courses I take. They want me to take certain courses that support diversity, um, DEI, equality, and inclusion. Okay? And mo a lot of the things that I'm doing in my training are, are supporting that. If I do that, that's considered good. And if I don't do that, then I'm intolerant. If they recommend vaccination and I take it, that's good. If I don't take the vaccine, that's not caring for my fellow man. Okay? So what I'm letting you know is we're going to have these choices in this time. Okay? And the question we have to go is, and part of the things God's going to ask us is more surrender. Because to some extent, we've been able to kind of navigate our way through one step kind of in the kingdom and some one step in the world. It's going to get harder and harder for us to make that, to straddle that. Those lines are going to get more and more divergent. So that shows up with the media that we watch, how much we accept. Because more and more of the media are going to push the agenda of what they're saying. It's already happening. And how much of that media do we decide to consume? Whether it's on, at home on the television set or on our phone. Okay? These are the things you're going to have to make choices about. Because more and more, it's getting more lawless. You, you look at anything on any kind of media search, I was looking at that, it's like, wow, all that stuff, even though I try to filter it out, it's all focused on things that are very worldly. Even what's like, even the idea of the new generation versus boomers, like trying to create a generational um, gap in separation, a separation for authority that we don't respect things of authority, okay? New generation, everybody's on equal footing. It doesn't matter because I have access to the internet. I have the same knowledge you have, so my, your opinion is no different than mine. My opinion is on equal footing to yours. That's really not how it works here. That's not how it works in the Word of God. It talks about certain things about respect. Children respect your parents. Parents, and those in pastors and leadership to be servant leaders. But there's a thing about listening to the governing authorities. That's not what's happening in our culture. And I want you to understand the tension is going to struggle at you and the natural inclination in the flesh is to go, who do they think they are? I don't agree with them. Look at all. And, and I pointed out about those people in position of authority who've betrayed that trust and that will be used reasonably as justification to not support them. To not support others in authority. And that's we have to be a caution. We have to be cautious about that. So my invitation, and I won't quite finish the chapter out, but I want you to understand 
there is going to be the man of lawlessness that's going to come in the world. But that spirit is present, and that spirit affects us. And we have to watch. We need something supernatural to guard us against that. We get that where we hear we're in fellowship. We get that when we spend time in the Word. We get that through the power of the Holy Spirit. The more we're surrendered and filled with God's Holy Spirit, the more we'll be able to discern those things. The more we'll be able to stand fast to what's coming ahead. The more I rely on my own thinking, choosing, you know, like I said, that plumb line, the more I start to go away and choose my own way and my own thinking, my own understanding, my own wants and desires, the harder it will be to listen. It will be a slippery slope. We continually have to be reset. It's like you have to reboot your computer. When I work, I have to reboot my computer every shift I, I work. Well, we need to reboot our spirit every morning with God. Every morning, I need to come before him and say, God, I am prone to wander away from you. I'm prone to rely on my own thinking and reasoning. I am prone for lawlessness. And I need you. I need you to set me straight, to think the way that you do, to trust in your word, to trust in what you wanted to do in and through me. I choose this day to serve you, as Joshua did. I choose, I'm going to help, help me to carry the cross you've given to me, you've given for me. Help me to die to myself. Help me to be a servant for others and see others the way that you do. Because I'll be honest, every day I keep thinking of myself. My natural inclination first thing in the morning is me. Maybe you guys are different, but I doubt it. I doubt it. Okay? Our natural inclination. So we need God to reset us. Desperately. And we have to passionately seek that and be together. I love our worship. I love our fellowship because it helps me. I need it. I don't do it just for your benefit, though I do do it for your benefit. I also do it mainly for my benefit because it's what keeps me, my plumb line straight. It lets me keep my eyes focused on eternity. So don't give up meeting together. Don't give up supporting one another. Even though other things will come in play and you'll think it's reasonable, spend the time. The more time you spend focused on things of God, the more he'll strengthen you for that. So I'm going to give a few minutes. Does anybody have any questions to what I just shared? Yes, Frank. Good question. Um, we're not 100% certain. Okay. I've read different ideas of what they talked about that mystery. Some says the idea of that is a lot of the mystery of lawlessness will be, it will be um, hidden. Okay. So it'll be mysterious in the sense that it won't be obvious and blatant. blatant okay. Until the right time. And then it'll be blatant. Okay. Um, so there's that component of mystery. The mystery also is the nature of how lawlessness is. Part of that is, is it's already present in the, earl, in, the, um, in the world. So the evil is present since the fall. 
even though his presence since Satan or Lucifer was thrown down onto the earth. Okay? But how entirely that Satan works, to some extent, that's a mystery. How he's going to do that, we don't fully understand. Praise God that we don't, and praise God for those of us, we shouldn't. We actually need to be innocent of evil. That's what God wants us to be, is innocent of that. So if you're truly innocent of evil, evil will be a mystery. A child who doesn't know, some things they're innocent of. What's happened now, unfortunately, is we've lost the sense of that mystery. You know, a kid at 10 or 12 knows stuff that I didn't know until I was 18. Okay, I'm like, they know all of that. They've gone through stuff. They've lost that sense of that wonder or where things are, but it's not been a sense of mystery to them. Okay? Um, some of the stuff in terms of mystery also being evil is we won't know what that looks like. So when we talk about those signs and wonder, okay, and he's going to do all these things, and you think it's going to be good, and you'll think, but it's evil. And you're like, no, it looks good. Okay? And so it will need the Holy Spirit to help us to realize, hey, this is not right. Okay? And he'd look good. He's going to look really good. He will. This person coming will not be obvious. It will not be an obvious thing. Okay? That's why I use that expression again and again. When the lawlessness comes, it will look like the right thing to do. We're getting a taste of that already, but look even more so. Right now we think, oh, no, no, there's no way I'm going to fall for that. It's bad. It's obvious. No, it will not be obvious. It will not be obvious. Does that answer your question? Yes. Is there any other? Okay, two questions. So let's answer the first one. Who's the restrainer? And the answer is, we don't know. Some believe the restrainer is one of the archangels. They talk about Michael being one of the, you know, an archangel governing um, Israel. Okay, some think the restrainer may be that. Others believe the restrainer will be the church. If the church is raptured out, the Holy Spirit's gone, and the Holy Spirit is the restrainer that restrains the evil. So once the church is raptured, those who believe, obviously, in a pre-trib rapture will say, oh, once the church is raptured out, there's no Holy Spirit on the earth in the same way. You don't, because the Holy Spirit's in each one of us, and that's the restraining. And that even though our influence is less as the church, it still restrains evil. You know when you come to a place that's holy because of the people there, it has an effect on you. Okay? Those who've been to a Pure Life campus will know that and they feel something there. There's a spirit that's present. When that's taken away, you've lost that restraining that restrains evil. That's probably the best explanation, but we're not 100% certain on that. With regards to the other part is, will the Antichrist have the power to heal and to raise those from the dead? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I don't understand how he'll have that, okay, because we think only God can do the healing. We don't know if it's a real dead, fake dead, what things are, and we can try to rationalize that, but I think it will be that good of miracles. So yes, will he heal people? Yes. Will people rise from the dead? I think so. 
I can't say for certain, but I believe so. Okay, it will, it will, like I said, except, you know, if it could be possible, even the elect would be swayed. We'll look at them and go, he's the one. How do we know it's not? Because the other things, signs haven't happened. Okay, I want you to remember that. There will be certain things that are conditional that God has decreed will happen. Okay, if it's not yet like Noah's day age, then we're not there yet. Those signs and wonders may come though. Okay, is that, is that clear? Any other question? Go ahead, Eric. So, if I'm understanding that correctly, it looks like the Antichrist will be on the earth, raised up from you know, being young to old person to live through, whereas he's coming back from the clouds, right? Well, Jesus was on the earth and raised up when he was here the first time. But when Jesus comes back, he'll come back, right, he'll come back in the cloud to meet us and then come back with the armies. So that seems like a very clear distinction. You're right, right? Correct. Um, you think that would make enough for people to get the distinction, and I think so too. But like I said, it will be somebody who will, impre it will impress. And it may be somebody who we don't know. We don't know where the beginning was, or it'll sound like an immaculate conception, or it'll sound like something that we don't understand, okay? So I don't know well, how that's going to play out. And he may be a nice person initially, okay? Because not then the spirit of Lucifer will enter into him. That's when he's revealed as the Antichrist, okay? So he won't be born like the spawn of Satan kind of thing. Okay? So I don't want you to get that idea, this is bond of Satan from birth who's evil all the way through. That's not what it's going to look like. Okay? He may be a regular Joe Schmo and then grows up and then the spirit of the enemy kind of comes in. But he'll have obviously these signs and powers that indicate, and that one may be, he may be a Joe Schmo and then suddenly something happens. You go, oh yeah, he's got power. This is God's anointing on him. Any other question? Yes, David. I know I said that. Oh, didn't want to get into a whole discussion about that. You know what? Why don't you meet me afterwards and we'll talk about that one. I'll explain that. But before we end off, I'm going to end it now. Pastor has some few words that he wants to share to the, to the guys. So come on forward.